Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. In this episode of Sustainability and You, we talk with Anna Marie Slot. Anna Marie is a senior partner at the preeminent law firm Ashhurst's. She is head of ESG and sustainability and a partner in their finance practice. She has two decades of experience acting for investment banks and companies in a wide range of corporate finance and securities transactions, including high yield debt offerings, green bonds liability management, and much more. We talk about the rising incidence of climate litigation and how this might inform the role of law, financial and corporate decision-making, assessments of risk and the approach to liability and opportunity management around evolving corporate strategies. These are especially prevalent thought processes in light of the recent IPCC Sixth Assessment Report and COP26 that attributes global warming to anthropogenic causes. In time, this may mean that large corporates may ultimately be attributed their proportionate share of global warming and responsibility for consequential damages that may follow. The role of legislation and the courts is discussed in tandem with other actors who are expected to generate momentum towards net zero. So welcome, Anna-Marie, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Philip and I are absolutely delighted to have you with us today. It's great, it's great to be here, Josephine. So thanks very much for your invitation. Oh, not at all. Um, we thought that it would be a great place to start, Anna-Marie, to understand your role as Global Head of Sustainability at Ashhurst, and if you could also cover off for us what it means to be a sustainable organization in the legal world as well as part of that answer. Sure, happy to. So, you know, we put this role in place a couple of years ago, back in 2019. And what it really does is bring together what we've been doing already across the globe in different areas uh, with our clients around uh, sustainability and ESG. And, you know, we we saw that trend, we saw that movement from something that people thought about as a kind of contained silo, sort of CSR type category into the real recognition that this is an externality that hasn't been adequately reflected in the business ecosystem up until recently. And so taking that out and realizing that our clients were going to be challenged by this in the coming years, in the coming decades, just put that together so that 
you know, it didn't matter what practice group you're in or where you're located in the world. You know, all of our clients need the help of all sorts of lawyers on that front, everything from projects lawyers who are doing deals in the renewables to employment lawyers who are working KPIs into employment contracts. Yeah, that that strikes me as a complex challenge, Anna, Anna Marie. You know, when you look at the diversity of specialisms within a global law firm to find all the sustainability touch points within it and to, I guess, mould meaningful offerings within them that are relevant to the client base. That must be um, a very complex challenge, but also a very good challenge. Now, it's very interesting because, you know, it, it is about looking, you know, from the client's perspective and looking through their lens at what their challenge is. And so it doesn't really you know, the clients are less interested in what division you sit in in your own group, right? They're more interested in finding a solution to a problem. And and to be able to bring that kind of whole firm approach where we don't have a quote-unquote sustainability practice group. We basically, I mean, my goal is to have all the lawyers in the firm and all the advisors in the firm to be looking through that lens of sustainability and, and questioning what are my clients challenged with today and how you know, what role do I play in being able to, to assist them in that? So you are you pushing a level of education and knowledge into those teams to enable better conversations? We are, we are definitely. And as I, I'm in the midst of trying to roll out our very first internal conference, which we're calling COP Academy, to really upskill the entire firm. And that's that's everyone in the firm. That's the lawyers in the firm, our business services, because we're all part of that solution, right? Because not only is it how we inter- interact with our clients, but also what are we doing as a firm? Who 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 we decided to be, and then also, you know, through that client lens, how we fit into their scope three. Because obviously, as someone who works with those companies, we are part of their chain. So it's really looking at it in a very holistic way um, across the firm. That sounds fantastic. I mean, it would be great to hear some examples of some of the things that you're doing there, um, both as an organization. So internally, maybe an example of what you're doing with your clients where it's moving the needle in the thinking. And then that scope three example also is, is would be really powerful, I think, to hear about. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to client questions, obviously, you know, we deal with their questions as they come and we try to work with them about where they're going. So it's about sitting down with them and figuring out where is it that they are intersecting with the various questions. I mean, a lot of companies obviously have made uh, public statements around net zero goals. So that's a, that's an easy point of conversation with clients. Have you made them? If you've made them, what does that mean to you? How are you delivering on them? How are you talking about them? You know, for a lot of our clients, we do a lot of work with regulated clients, so banks and, and fund managers and asset managers. Those are all groups of people that are coming under more and more regulation, particularly for places like the EU, but the EU is not the only place that's passing the regulations at the moment around disclosure and trying to ensure that when people talk, they're talking in a clear and transparent way. The U.S. is doing the same, obviously taking a very U.S. stance, as you can tell from my voice, I'm American. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. approach has historically always been, you know, you tell me what's material, you disclose to the market what's important to the market. And that's done more frequently in the U.S. from a kind of TCFD type standard 
uh, rather than specific regulations. We'll see what happens with the new administration and how they approach that in the future. But um, and I think, you know, the UK now post-Brexit is probably leaning towards that TCFD and they've announced the TCFD requirements yeah. on, uh, on certain companies but using the taxonomy that essentially from the EU, those those words so that people understand what you say and what you mean to say when you say these things. Because, I mean, that's, you know, that's a real point where clients need to sit and think through what they're doing. It's, it's, it's those words and what do you mean by those words and how do those words compare with other people using those words? So that, that's a that's yeah. a key focus on, on our external. On the internal side, it's really interesting. I mean, we've had huge uh, increases in interest from our our own um, clients about what we're doing, uh, which translates into you know where what are our commitments around really just transforming how we do business. So we have commitments around changing how we think about travel. We have commitments around our premises. And as a services company, that's our two biggest areas. We don't manufacture anything. So, so that's where we've really focused on making short-term goals that that to, to get into action now. Um, and then also looking at what are we going to be committing to in the medium and the long-term and how to make sure that what we're saying is stuff we can deliver on. Well, look, if we if we take a step back, Anna-Marie, what do you think the role of the law is in the advancement of um, net zero goals? We, we often hear about what's the role of government, what's the role of the private sector. What's the role of the law here? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question, right? And and they're like with all questions, there's lots of answers. And of course, if you ask a lawyer a question, you're going to get a lot more answers than you get from most other people. What is the role of law? And also, what is the role of a law firm? And what is the role of law practitioners? Those are kind of all iterations on a theme. I mean, there is definitely a strength that lawyers can bring to this conversation because we have spent our whole lives focused on assessing risks for our clients, you know, identifying for them what are their requirements, but also in a broader sense, even if that's legally required or legally allowed, you know, what is, what is potentially other risks that you might be running around doing various activities? And, and while we can't control our clients, we can give advice about what we think are are those risks and that risk profile. And I think that's been a really fascinating aspect over the last few years, that that awareness of risk is certainly evolving and changing at a very rapid rate, really, across the business system. And then, you know, separately, law as we, you know, with the capital L, what is the role of law? I mean, that's really an interesting question as well about what kind of regulation do you put in place? What kind of government policy is there in place? What are what are government's positions on things? You know, and I think at the moment around 60% of countries have committed to some kind of net zero goal or or, or it made some kind of commitment, you know, and then business really has to deliver on that right because because that's where most of those emissions are coming from not coming from the government themselves and so you know how do businesses function within those frameworks sometimes those are laws and sometimes they're just expectations that government has put onto business so there's a lot of of nuance and layers of uh, interpretation that are going on around around delivering on those commitments 
I would just like to add another layer, actually, while we're talking about roles. What do you see the the role of the courts playing? And, you know, a bit of background, right? The the number of strategic cases has recently increased. And um, the primary objective of a strategic case is to bring societal shifts. So when we talk about the roles of law and, and lawyers, what do you see the role of the courts playing um, as an instrument to drive change? Yeah, so um, as you said, the, the number of court cases has increased and they're increasing at an ever <laughs> rap- more rapid rate. It's an interesting question, right? Because you you use the court for different things. So the, the court itself probably only wants to be used to litigate actual cases that have a grounding and that they can take a position on. But it, it is clear that people sometimes bring cases for other reasons. They want to affect policy change. They want to create a conversation that maybe hasn't happened in the past. And I think courts courts aren't there to determine policy and they're not there to make new policy. And, and, and that's in most court systems across the world, that courts are there to interpret the existing legislation that's on the books and how is that done and so i think that that in some ways people are using the courts to just try to open that conversation at a legislative level even if they don't anticipate that they will be changed or or that they will win in court they they do it and you see that and you know certain court cases are brought for very small damages or for for you know not not that much um, in terms of penalties but it's about starting that conversation at a at a strategic high level. But it is it's an interesting strategy to generate change, isn't it? If you look at what's happened with the Shell case and the court prescribing a 45% decarbonization goal for, for Shell, it's it's forced them and others to re-strategize. And, and reconsider deployment of capital and their uh, existing carbon footprint of, sort of global organisations. So, yes, it's generating discussion. It certainly has a ripple effect, but it is also forcing change in quite a meaningful way. And all eyes on those organisations that have been parties to those those discussions or, or, or cases. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, in the Dutch courts have, I mean, the, this, this kind of the shell case is probably quite in line with previous decisions by the Dutch courts yes. to recognize, you know, different claimants and different rights um, that maybe in other jurisdictions wouldn't be seen in the same light. But but definitely that that was a case that did bring attention not just in Holland but around the world to understanding what does it mean to have these different timeframes. And I think that's the real interesting question here is really what, when you're making assessments and when you're making decisions on what timeframe do you do them and, and who, who's, who's bearing the responsibility for, for the costs and who's bearing the benefits uh, of the actions. And, and I think that's where people have used the courts to try to, to change that discourse for, for whatever reason. Um, maybe they they feel they can't get to the legislatures or the legislatures aren't responding to them. But I think that that is that is driving some of the cases certainly to get that that temporal and generation intergenerational question on the table for people. 
Yeah, and I wonder whether we'll see increasing incidence of that when you look at the latest IPCC sixth assessment report that establishes causation between anthropogenic activity and climate change, because there, from a legal perspective, where one can assert causation, um, one can then attribute damage uh, as a result of certain actions to either companies or individuals or, or indeed government bodies. What are your thoughts on that, given the IPCC's clear attribution of, of temperature rises to, 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 to mankind and human behavior? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting. It will be very interesting. The IPCC reports have, you know, have in the past also the previous reports. Have also been used in in court when you you know when people go into court they they grab on to um, as much information as they can to make their case and and I think the IPCC report coming out and, and creating that not creating but re- recognizing from a scientific perspective that link <clears throat> between what humans are doing and what impact that that has on the climate I think is I mean the, the, there I would. There's no surprise that people will bring that into a court as a document to help establish that causation. Because as you say, you know, a court has to action within a set of rules. So a court can't do just whatever it wants. It, it needs to respond to its rule of conduct. It needs to respond to the laws that are on the books. It needs to respond to causation. And courts have, they have parameters within which they need to be making their decisions. Which is which is also kind of back to the question of, of courts versus legislature and passing laws because you know the laws can be much more effective for what people want to achieve because the court has to operate within a framework. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I mean, it would be hard, and I've been pondering on this. It'd be hard for a corporate to argue that something wasn't foreseeable in light of the IPCC report's findings and actually being really clear on the different types of and levels of likelihood of particular types of action and its consequences on the climate. You mentioned earlier having to advise clients on their risk management strategies and approach to risk and liability with that line of foreseeability and and, and a heightened sensitivity of, of, of attribution of damage. How how can you see that area of legal advice, if not financial advice, that follows as well, changing and growing immediately, let alone by 2030? Yeah, no, I do think you're going to see a lot of movement. One of the really fascinating parts of focusing on, on, you know, ESG and climate change um, is that it's it's moving at an incredible rate. The, The rate at which companies are thinking about it, the rate at which governments are thinking about it is, some would say, very slow because they've, you know, they've been wanting movement for 50 years on it. But if you look just in the recent past, it's actually moving quite quickly. If you look at the rate at which the EU is passing, uh, you know, its regulations around disclosure and sustainable finance, that that is actually quite quick for for governmental action. And that's probably right. I mean, we do need action uh, at this point and action in this decade, certainly, rather than, than more, more talking. And, and so that, I think, is, is also probably driving people's focus on the courts because they see that action as moving faster 
than a legislative process and probably generating more publicity than a legislative process would. And I think, you know, companies are used to and have entire departments that focus on making sure that, you know, reputational risk is addressed, making sure that what they're saying publicly, if they're a publicly listed company, making sure that they can stand by those statements. And so I think having that focus is really driving companies to really get granular about what they're saying and get granular about what they mean to say. It is a good process. I mean, transparent, clear discourse from companies is a, is a, is great. That That is the underpinning of all markets, right? And so when you can drive that kind of clarity and transparency so that everyone knows what you're talking about when you say certain things, that is helpful for moving things along. It's also helpful for the end goal, which is, of course, to create a sustainable business ecosystem that gives us a planet that that is resilient and sustainable that we can continue to thrive on. Absolutely. I mean, and how are you seeing that flow through into transaction documentation and legal due diligence processes? Because I'm assuming that there's a slight revamp of warranties, indemnities and an extension of legal due diligence, that the remit of it to incorporate environmental considerations. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there's de- you've definitely seen more and more granularity coming around diligence. You know, it, it, years ago, it was a couple of questions here and there. Do you have an environmental policy? Does, you know, do, do you take these things into consideration? <clears throat> you know, different industries obviously had different questions just depending on the industry. But I think everyone is seeing that level of diligence really heightened and really getting a lot more granular. And it, it, you know, really interesting questions for me is in particular kind of how the role of data interplays with that. So you have the questions, right, which you can answer. And in diligence, you, the deal team, know what's going on because you've done the diligence and, and you've gotten the answer. So to the extent that you know, everyone's telling the truth, which is something that lawyers can't help on. If you're not telling the truth, we we, we, we don't have a little magic wand. Um, but to the extent people are telling the truth, doing that higher level of diligence and that more detailed diligence is really helpful. But what I think will be really fascinating is how people involve the data and comparability of data across companies, right? So do you create like a an environmental climate ESG EBITDA figure, right? <clears throat> and if you do, you know, because that's a figure that is not an accounting figure, but is comparable and people have enough granularity, they can tell the difference. And then they, they, the market knows how to compare those two things. They know what to take out or what to put back. They know where they're sensitive to how people are talking about that. But do you create some figure that people can use more comparatively across companies because I think that right now there's a lot of information but there isn't a lot of comparability uh, absolutely and, and I mean, it's a huge opportunity for growth isn't it uh, and an opportunity for data analysts and data mining tools to really help businesses pull through decision useful data as you say yeah exactly yeah rather than just data, but data that you can act on and that actually enables you to be able to, to to make those transformations in your company to really deliver on what your commitments are, going back to you know where we started. I wanted to just clarify really that point. So 
you know, the the increased level on, on diligence and more available data, is that also baked into um, creditworthiness, for example? And I'm also you know, linking back to a recent article by S&P Global where essentially they're saying currently climate litigations is not part of material credit impact for companies and government. But is that something that should be baked into going forward and should it have material impact? And then to come back to the, the point we made earlier, would that also be a lever and an accelerator in driving you know, the right changes? Yeah, I think you're, I mean, you're asking completely the right question. I think there's a, there's a huge live debate going on right now about whether environmental consideration, climate change considerations are a credit risk uh, or are part of that credit analysis, or if they sit outside that frame, right, <clears throat> as an additive to that credit risk analysis. So, so do you do your traditional modeling and have next to it an environmental modeling um, of climate risk modeling? There's lots and lots of consultancies that will give an environmental rating to a company. And, and at what level do you integrate credit analysis, traditional credit analysis with climate risk analysis, essentially? That's a live and interesting debate with lots of people on either side of that. You know, the, the short version is you could probably talk about that for 10 years on its own uh, and, and get into lots of arguments about it. So, so to my mind, the short version is you need to kind of grab both and, and run with both because we're not at a place where we can kind of have the luxury to sit around and come up with the perfect solution of that. I think you have to get, you know, the experienced market players to look at both things, really delve into them, not as a, oh, I got a, a green or a deeper shade of green or a lighter shade of green from, from somebody, but what does that green mean, right? And how does that work with what I think is important, right? Because there's lots of timeframes on which you can look at risk, right? And so to look at risk on a two-year timeframe for a company that's in a transition in an industry that's in a transition, it looks very different from what looking at it on a seven-year time frame or a 10-year time frame, right? Yeah, Mark Carney made that point very well, didn't he, where he said sort of most long-term thinking around climate change scenarios are outside your normal credit cycle and business cycle. So it's hard to incorporate the risk management framework around that into, as you say, Anna-Marie, traditional thinking. But I can see with the increasing incidence of climate impacts um, playing out, I mean, we've had several this year, uh, unfortunately, there's convergence there or increasing convergence around the rate of climate incidence and therefore how it is taken into account in credit risk. It, but it's we're not quite at that pivot point yet. But I mean, a lot of the climate scenarios being run by the systemically important banks and insurance businesses is exactly to identify this, isn't it? And the time periods over uh, which things crystallize. And I, I guess we're at that stage where it will inform future thinking around credit risk and other risk management frameworks. And you identify a key player who, who doesn't get a lot of airtime, but the insurance and, and more importantly, the reinsurance market yeah. is is really a fascinating part of that conversation, right? Because they're probably the people with the longest horizon for, for risk. And they're the people whose historical models are off, 
right? Your historical model of how often you're going to have a climate event at this point is shifting, right? But yeah. they're still adjusting. How, how do you, it's a fascinating intersection, right? Because you know, traditional credit is, is, is generally backwards looking, right? How did I do in this environment? Right. And then if I stress a certain bit of it this way or that, what's my percentage? You know, if my you know exposure to currency is plus or minus five percent, then what did that do to my what would that have done to my historic numbers? But this is an issue that's forward looking with somewhat unclear data modeling. Yeah. Oh, and, and in fact, you know, one of the discussions I had with Professor Martin Siegert, who um, was a fantastic guest on our podcast we talked about exactly this, the forward-looking nature of the climate science and climate modelling with the best will in the world still has some gaps within it and therefore uncertainties to the non-linear nature of what could happen within the climate science doesn't quite translate into financial modelling as yet. No, exactly. Really interesting. And, you know, it is a very live discussion, as you say, and, you know, we should continue to have the discussion. At least this is raising this area of vulnerability that needs to be explored further. What, what I mean, moving on to a slightly separate note, what, what do you think will happen in relation to the market's understanding of fiduciary duties and, and the exercise of fiduciary duties? There has been um, a lot of more recent um, explanations, really, and, 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 and thought leadership on uh, what it means to be a fiduciary. Uh, interested in your views from a legal perspective on how you're seeing that playing out and whether you're getting queries from your client base on that. Yeah, look, I think, you know, we're obviously duty of care and, and, and all of those arguments as a developing area of law in the context of climate change. You know, it's, it, you know, as you've, if, as you've noted, that the amount of litigation in that area is growing at a huge rate. But I think in the, in the, the 30 years before 2014, I think there were probably 800 cases worldwide. Um, that's not a lot of court cases for, for 30 years worth of uh, global, global cases. So I think what we're seeing is we are seeing that developing. We're seeing cases, different cases, advancing arguments on different bases. It's an interesting question. Does it become a mainstay of climate litigation? Maybe, maybe it is getting traction uh, in the course. Obviously, the the, the Dutch court um, it does does recognize it. Um, there's there are a number of courts coming and looking at that in different context. Um, the European Commission of Human Rights is obviously looking at it in a, in a couple of different cases. All, all of that is evolving. And so <clears throat> that's also an interesting part of trying to extract trending from litigation cases because you need several cases to happen and to not be overturned, which is not a very quick process in order to be able to start a trend line within how the courts look at things. And then, of course, you have precedential value in one court, which doesn't have any carryover to another. So, you know, what's happening in the U.S. courts doesn't necessarily inform what's happening in an English court, even though they're both common law court systems. And that will also not necessarily roll into the EU, which is a civil law system. And so those those courts don't necessarily have to look at the same uh, aspects or, and, and certainly don't need to be bound by each other's decisions. So I think you will continue to see those arguments around fiduciary duty, arguments around duty of care 
evolving and being tested in the courts, definitely. Right. And, and given the say, increasing incidence of climate change litigation, the heightened focus we have on uh, risk management and the increasing clarification we have around fiduciary duties or what it means to be a good fiduciary. Do you think all companies should be developing an ESG strategy or at least embedding ESG into their mainstream strategies? I'm going to say as a matter of law, because there are legal (laughs) implications if you don't given that backdrop? I don't know if I'd raise it to a matter of law because the the laws are different in so many jurisdictions and they have different standards in all those jurisdictions. I do think as a matter of best practice, risk and compliance, you know, there is this growing awareness of the risks posed by climate change and that, you know, boards and management and companies really do need to focus on it seriously and look at what it means for themselves and have have a have a plan. I think it isn't something that you can say, oh well, the you know, in, in 10 years' time that the board's going to deal with it in 10 years' time. That that's no longer a possibility anymore. And boards that are putting that off and companies that are putting it off, I think are probably doing themselves a disservice. I mean, example, I am sure that every management and every board prior to COVID being felt around the the world had a two to three minute discussion about what would happen if we had to put all of our people over, you know, on on remote overnight because of a pandemic. And then for two minutes, everyone would go, yeah, it's probably okay. And they moved on. But this has really happened, right? COVID has required companies to put their entire workforce remote or figure out a way to continue to manufacture their products in a completely different risk environment for their workers and health and safety than as the norm. And that happened in weeks across the world, right? And so I think companies really do need to take seriously the fact that these risks exist and how they're going to respond to them, whether or not it's a legal question, whether or not somebody's going to come and uh, show up at your doorstep just to be a well-run company this is this is clearly something that needs to be on your agenda at the highest levels so that you have you know you have an answer to it and in in the, in the best case that you you know are leading the market on how you respond to that because that is also going to be a huge competitive advantage to be able to go out to your your market and say i you know i know exactly what i'm going to be doing in these various scenarios and i've looked at it and i have a plan i think that that that's a that's a real sales point, frankly, for companies that have actually taken the time and sat down and done it properly. Yeah, and obviously lots of good evidence that it generates alpha for those that do have, um, you know, effective ESG strategies. On a separate note, um, do you do you think there is a right to a stable climate? There's a case in Brazil, the IEA uh, versus Brazil, where that point is uh, is being made and it's being sought to embed uh, that right in the Brazilian constitution. It, it's an interesting case to answer to, isn't it? What 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 are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it really is. I, I think you know the evolution of you know human rights law has been a really fascinating historical evolution, right? And and I it doesn't surprise me that 
climate is now being talked about in that context. Does that start getting embedded across the world? It's hard to say. You know, again, every jurisdiction is different. For example, the UK doesn't have a constitution, so you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't embed it in the UK constitution because there isn't one. Is that is that a fundamental right? I think is is definitely a question that is a live debate and one that probably people take different positions on. I think at the end of the day, I tend to come back to the practical, which is we all have to create a, a sustainable, resilient world that we can continue to to live on and thrive on. And so, you know, that transformation of how we do things so that that is possible is something that that people should be focused on and thinking about how they they accomplish and how they action even without a right again uh so yeah. so you can have that debate but at the end of the day you, you i mean it's more important to move move, move the dial and, and get action which is actually leads nicely to my question as a uh, sort of young ambassador which is actually referencing a case from 2020 where a group of young German adults legally challenged the federal government that the current climate protection laws insufficiently set targets to reduce emissions for, uh, by 2030 and in line with the Paris Agreement. And therefore, this is violating theirs and future generations' um, basic human rights. And interestingly, the um, court ruled that the government has until the end of 2022 to actually come up with revised and much more clear targets on how to reduce these emissions. So I guess my question is more towards, do you think for younger people and for my generation and future generations, this is really a way for us to drive change, systemic change, but also um, get our voices heard in terms of identifying uh, cases like this and then really having you know, driving climate litigation, also having court approvals to to drive that change. I think the intergenerational aspects of climate change are important and and definitely something that needs to be considered. I would suspect that the you know various stakeholders can can make more of an impact, probably without without going to the court. The court system is very long um, and, and in different, you know, in different jurisdictions, different people pay for it. I think, you know, the, the efforts that are being made right now by the various stakeholders around the world and pressures on companies are, are having a lot of impact. A, a huge impact on companies really is where people put their money. Do you buy people's products do you complain um, about where the products come from? You know, do you as the future generation walk away from a company because you don't like how it's it's responding to something? I, I suspect, and, and, and it, probably my fellow lawyers would be sad uh, that I'm not advocating for, for lots and lots of cases to be, to be brought through courts. I suspect that that movement of finance actually has has a very big influence on companies, right? And what companies do and and how quickly they do them. Because, you know, every company wants to be successful in in in, in particular in attracting millennials and the next generation below millennials, not only as consumers, but also as employees. And the companies that we talk to, all of them are all of the ones who are paying attention are paying attention to both how their workforces are because that's a, it's a huge human capital is a huge cost for every company right and so 
looking at how your workforce and interfaces with you and what they find important and whether or not you're reflecting those values is a massive conversation I find at the, you know, at the top levels of companies. And then also, of course, customers, you know, without customers, companies don't exist. I think you're already seeing people approaching that as a more direct route. Um, You know, where do I put my money in terms of my, me as a consumer, where do I put my money as an investor? What do I demand of, of those two groups? But you know, I'm sure I'm sure there's more court cases to come. They they they, they, they won't be going away. But I, I think that you know, following the finances is is also pretty important. And if I can just ask one more question, which is more of an open-ended question, based on everything you've done and the experiences you've gathered, if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, um, let's say mid twenties, what would that piece of advice be? Oh, does it have to be climate related? No. No, life related. <laughs> life related. Oh, I don't know if that's better or worse. Um, I think it would be that, you know, if things aren't haven't worked out the way you thought, then maybe it's not the end yet. Right. So they're still working their way out. There, there's a lot of things that come at times that you didn't expect when you think that you're going down one path and actually you end up in a different path. And that path is 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 really fits you much better. And I think don't don't worry about being confused because most of us are confused, I think, until we're about 90. Uh, I still ask my mother what she wants to be when she grows up and she's she's 85. So she's got different answers for me on different days. And she's fully within her senses. She just has different answers because she feels differently about it. Oh God, I, I love I love that advice. Don't you feel it? That's great. Uh, we could all we could all um, take a piece of that, Anna Marie, if that's okay. <laughs> Well, I know. Happy to share. Happy to share my confusion. Yeah. Feel, feel free. <laughs> but on that note, um, Anna Marie, may I thank you for your time today? It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion, and there's so much to it. You know, we could talk for hours, but I'm hoping that people will take away um, some real gems, actually, uh, uh, of thoughts here to to action within their um, organisations and daily lives. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both.